Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Strap on your parachute. It's time for What Goes Up with Sarah Ponzik and Mike Regan. Hello, and welcome to What Goes Up, a Bloomberg Weekly Markets podcast. I'm Sarah Ponsek, a reporter on the Cross Asset team. And I'm Mike Regan, a senior editor at Bloomberg. And as Sarah's official hype man, I have to give a shout out to Sarah this week for getting the cover story of Business Week magazine. Hope all our listeners rush out to the newsstand and, and grab it on Robin Hood. Congratulations, Sarah. Thank you. I'm flattered, Mike. I'm, I'm so lucky to know that I have such a loyal hype man. So everyone who's listening, you have to take Mike's word, even though he hasn't read the story, um, and go read it yourself. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's fabulous, even though you've only seen the title. We'll take it and run with it. But it is about Robin Hood. If you haven't listened to last week's episode either, we spoke to Liz Ann Saunders over at Schwab about the day trader effect. So it's also a great episode to listen to if you haven't already. But this week on the show, anyway, Mike, investors are coalescing around the idea that no matter who wins the election, there will be more stimulus down the road. But with all this government spending, will there be enough demand to meet all the supply? And of course, we will close out the episode with our tradition, the craziest thing I saw in markets this week. And after all, if you saw something crazy, give us a call on the Bloomberg podcast hotline at 646-324-3490 and leave us a voicemail. Maybe we'll play it on the show with your crazy thing or any other feedback you have for the show. And Sarah, let's introduce that guest. Sort of a change of pace for us this week because our guest is a real expert on fixed income, currency markets. Uh, so we're going to dive into things like uh, inflation break-evens and the yield curve and that sort of thing. But without any further ado, from Wells Fargo Securities, we're very happy to have one of their macro strategists, Zachary Griffiths. Zach, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Great to see you guys. Great to see you again. You know, Zach, I wanted to get in all the things Sarah mentioned, but I wanted to start off with something kind of in the weeds because it's a topic that really fascinates me, and that's the interest rate swap market. We had what they call the Big Bang uh, last weekend where basically, and this is amazing to me, Sarah, I'm not sure how much you know about the swaps market. I know a little bit. Not I too much. To I will completely be honest and admit that. Right, right. I, I know a little bit. I happen to edit a long story on, on the Big Bang. So now, of course, I'm an expert. I, I, can, I can talk with, with guys like Zach about it. But <laughs> huge market that I don't think a lot of our listeners really necessarily appreciate how it, it's important. Something like $100 trillion in notional value on interest rate swaps. Something like 80-some trillion is through clearinghouses. And what happened last weekend is it's been part of this multi-year switch to get away from LIBOR and other uh, interest rate benchmarks and promote uh, the secured overnight financing rate or, or SOFR um, as sort of the replacement for LIBOR. So what they did is they, they switched uh, interest rate benchmarks as far as the discounting rate of how you value these swaps from the uh, effective federal funds rate to SOFR. 
Now, it sounds like a, a pretty simple thing to switch, but boy, not really. I mean, you think of 80-some trillion emotional swaps out there, having to change discount rates. Even a few basis points is going to cause massive sort of changes in valuations of these swaps, which is, which is what happened. And the clearinghouses had to sort of match up the winners and losers and sort of divert billions of dollars from uh, people whose swaps went up in value to those who went down. And they also issued tens of billions in swaps to compensate for changes in risk in this market. Really fascinating thing that happened. Now, Zach, I, I know you had a note on this talking about sort of the potential ripple effects. A lot of people who got basis swaps as compensations, whether, whether they're banks or hedge funds, don't really use basis swaps to hedge the way uh, you know, the clearinghouses view other counterparties using them. So the idea was that there were these auctions of, I think, was like $25 billion worth of swaps at CME and uh, a, a bunch more at LCH in London. And there yep. was a, a lot of concern about sort of dislocations in the, in the market after that. How did it all go down from your perspective? Was there any sort of uh, market anomalies that you noticed, any sort of inkling that some hedge funds or banks might be feeling a little pain because of the switch? Well, I have some heartbreaking news to start us out. That was actually my crazy thing in markets. I figured just like last time, I mean, anytime you can say 120 trillion notional of anything occurred, that's pretty crazy, right? And that's just for LCH. And so far, it seems like the auctions went fairly well. And, and we had been concerned about some potential widening in the SOFR Fed funds basis. And you may have seen some of that, but overall, it's, it's gone well. But it's really a huge step in the process towards shifting away from LIBOR and to SOFR as the risk-free rate and the benchmark rate in the U.S. So it's it's really an incredible thing that, that went on over the weekend. And so far, I think it's going to be a process seeing how it all shakes out. But the initial indications are that the auction works fairly well and that the market has been stable in the wake of, of the huge move. So we'll put you on the spot. You have about 20 minutes now, Zach, to come up with something new by the time we get to the end of the podcast. Okay, yeah. That should be easy <laughs> enough. Just kidding. <laughs> Zach, wasn't this a long time coming, though? Were there signs that this was going to happen? Yeah, it was a long time coming. And you saw some reaction in markets as certain participants were setting up for the big bang. So there's a chance that a lot of positioning around the Big Bang was was done and dusted before the weekend hit. And so I think that probably contributed to some of the relative stability around it. And overall, I think it's a it's a huge step toward the, the transition to SOFR. And I think when anytime that you have such a shift in these these clearinghouses, which really see the majority of swaps that are done go through them, that's that's really a, a landmark thing. And when we talk to certain clients, it, it does seem like there's still skepticism that this shift from LIBOR is going to happen. And this was, I think, a big step in the right direction. And, and yes, it, it was widely expected, but it, it's just another step toward this this process that we've been kind of banging on the drum that it's very real. And, and so are the regulators. So it's it's a big thing. And, um, you know, there's there's only going to be more shifting in that direction going forward. You know, Zach, let's switch to sort of a more mundane uh, fixed income topic, and that's the the backup in yields we've seen this week is getting interesting. I mean, we're still at very low rates in the U.S. Uh, 
10 years, you know, 80 some basis points, you know, 30 years still well below 2%. What do you make of it? Is it sort of part of this blue wave trade idea? Is it, you know, the economic recovery is starting to, to perk up? What do you make out of what's going on with rates this week? Yeah, it's tough to parse out what some of these moves are really directly attributable to. I think part of it comes down to the prospect of a blue wave, which equals more stimulus. The one thing that's been kind of fascinating to us over the past couple of weeks and maybe even a couple of months is how much the market has focused on headlines around fiscal stimulus, sort of expecting it to happen before the election. And we've been in the camp that that's a very unlikely outcome and has only gotten less likely as we are so close to the election now. And I think that's been a key driver of where we've gotten to today. So when we think about the risks in the near term heading into the election, you have a week that contains the U.S. election, an FOMC meeting, a Treasury refunding announcement and non-farm payrolls. We think I can't believe that's allowed. Neither can we. It's (laughs) I feel like even two of those things is too much. and, And we have four tier one, super tier one events all in one week. But when we think about the risks to yields in the near term, we think it's to the downside. And that's sort of a weighted average of these different outcomes that you can have with the election, with the FOMC meeting, with Treasury refunding. And the thing that we think might not be reflected in yields right now is the possibility of a delayed election outcome or a contested election outcome where you have a big risk off move the 10-year yield shifts dramatically lower in that scenario. And that'll sort of be dynamic as, you know, I I don't think it's anticipated that we'll have the results at the end of November 3rd, just depending on how close the race is and how many mail-in ballots you have. You're really dealing with an election that is unlike any others we've had in recent past with all of the potential mail-in voting. So we think that the risks are to the downside in the near term, but over the medium term, we do think that the story remains extremely heavy, heavy treasury issuance. And that's even without another fiscal package, which might become more likely once you have an election result and a better understanding of who's in the White House and in Congress. And, you know, that that only increases the risk of, of higher yields. From here, So short term, you could see yields come down a bit, depending on how things go with the election. Over the medium term, we think that directionally, it's yields higher and curves steeper. I am going to go ahead and hedge ourselves a little bit and just say, we do record this podcast on a Thursday. So if by chance something happens with stimulus on Friday, we will have recorded this beforehand. I feel like I have to say that just in case. But that's an important like disclosure, you said, yeah. Very important disclosure. But going forwards, if no matter what, we do get another stimulus package and and say we do have a blue wave and that means trillions dollars more worth of fiscal stimulus down the pipeline. I remember the last time we spoke earlier this year, we talked about the supply coming to the Treasury market from that first round of stimulus, the CARES Act. And there were a few concerns about supply or demand meeting that supply, if we get trillions and trillions dollars more worth of stimulus, what is that going to look like from a supply and demand standpoint? Yeah, that's a great point, Sarah. And if you think back to March, April, even May, all of that supply was handled through the bill market. Almost all of that supply as Treasury 
less frequently adjusts its coupon auction sizes as it wants its auctions to be regular and known and, and not very volatile. They sort of handle any shifts in issuance needs through the bill market. So that's, I mean, the what they did back then is they introduced these cash management bills that they have been issuing on a regular basis since then. And they've driven up the cash balance to 1.7 trillion, I think it's at around now. And so the big difference going forward is some of this additional stimulus will be able to be handled with the cash balance that's that's really so high. If you think about it, Treasury's own forecast for the cash balance for the end of this year is $800 billion. We're $900 billion above that now. Now, Treasury has baked into its forecast a $1 trillion fiscal stimulus package, which has not materialized yet. So when we think about the next one, two, three trillion, a lot of that can be handled through the cash balance. And that sort of takes the edge off of the ultimate size of the new package because they can they have the cash to, to pay for a certain amount of that. And having that cash on hand, if they are to decide to ramp up unemployment insurance to the, the additional $600 billion per month again, or write checks to certain U.S. households, they can do that with that supply of cash. And going forward, more of that supply is going to be termed out. And, and you've really seen extreme increases in long-term auctions at May and August, even higher than we had anticipated. But they've gone fairly well up to this point. But we do think going forward, you're going to hit a point where some of these buyers that maybe are buying out of need and not of want, they just need the duration and they don't necessarily have to look at, at the yields, which are still quite unattractive. As that starts to dry up and, and people can take a step back and, and perhaps reconsider, then I, I think that's one of the contributing factors that, that sends yields higher, especially if you do get another fiscal stimulus package. your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Well, Zach, you talk about buyers in the treasury market, which I think obviously the elephant in the room there is the Fed, who I, I still believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but the last figures I saw, they're still buying something like $80 billion a month in yep. uh, treasury, treasury notes and bonds. I, I mean, that seems like a lot to me. And, you know, the motivation originally was to restore liquidity in, in the treasury market. Is the liquidity still that bad that we need 80 billion of purchases a month from the Fed? Or is this kind of maybe a little bit of yield curve control in disguise, in your opinion? Yeah, that's a great point. Treasury market liquidity has largely been restored for several months now. And some of the discussion around asset purchases has shifted toward the Fed needing to do more by way of accommodation. And that could involve either increasing purchases overall or shifting them further out the curve. And one thing that they changed in the policy statement recently is they explicitly recognize that these purchases are not 
simply for stabilization and restoring market liquidity, they are providing accommodation. So when we kind of balance some of the public speeches and some speculation around shifting purchases further out the curve with with the policy statement, it would suggest that they're acknowledging what they're already doing is providing accommodation. So maybe that's an effort to buy them time to really understand what's going to happen on the fiscal side before they try to adjust their purchases, increase their purchases to become more accommodative since they they recognize now that they are already providing accommodation. And when we think about what's sort of missing from the equation on the fiscal side, the fiscal side of the equation is much more equipped to handle the issues that we have now, whether that be writing checks, providing additional unemployment insurance. I don't think that you can replace the fiscal those fiscal policies with buying more treasuries. I mean, we have seen a backup in yields, but borrowing costs are low and increasing asset purchases from 80 to 100 billion. I don't see that really providing the type of relief that the U.S. economy needs now as we continue to deal with partially shut down economies and, and people that are still out of work. That's Asset purchases are not really well equipped to handle that situation, which is why we think that any adjustment to the asset purchase program is is probably a little ways out at this point. So when we look up at this backup in yields that we've seen this past week and its components, something I've seen highlighted is that the backup in yields that we're seeing is actually due to a rise in the term premium. So that being the premium that investor holds for holding a longer dated security instead of just rolling a shorter dated one and not so much actually inflation expectations. I want to get your take on this. Are you guys seeing the same breakdown? And if so, I mean, I feel like that has a lot of implications for other trades if we're not seeing a backup in yields for inflation or growth reasons. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And it's it's tough to, to break all of this down because you have seen break-evens come back quite a bit, especially in you know looking at 10-year break-evens moving back towards 170 basis points. And when you think about how that compares to inflation fundamentals, it's actually in excess of what you're seeing uh, or right around what you're seeing in, in core inflation. So I think you are seeing some of the rise in yields as, as a result of, of rising inflation expectations. But with the economy as fragile and frail as it still is coming out of the largest shutdowns that we had back in in March and April, I think the the story remains that some of these or all of these factors are contributing at least somewhat, but the Fed just saying that they are targeting average inflation is not enough to push up expectations materially until you start to see some of, of it in the hard numbers, which, which we haven't seen yet. And if you think back to the latest CPI figure, almost all of the growth in core CPI was in used cars and trucks. So you have a situation where core prices aren't rising broadly. You have, you're still having some of this funky data and it's sort of hard to back out what that really means for inflation going forward. But I think, you know, part of, part of the story is certainly an increase in, in expectations. And like a lot of these Fed policies we saw back in March and April, just the announcement of them restored a lot of liquidity to the commercial paper markets, the corporate bond markets. And I think you get a little bit of that in, in inflation expectations based on the new policy, but it remains to be seen if, if the 
if the hard data will actually back it up. Hey, Zach, let's uh, shift gears a little bit and talk about currencies uh, a little bit. You know, the other big trend we've seen in, in recent weeks and months is uh, some pretty noticeable weakening of the dollar versus other currencies. To me, what I find interesting is you tend to have these regimes where the dollar can be sort of uh, appreciating for months or even years at a time and then depreciating for months and years at a time. Obviously, too early in this sort of phase of weakening to to say if we're in a, a new regime or not. But, but what's your take? Is this a sign of, of more to come? Or, or can we expect a, a weaker dollar, say, going into 2021? I mean, is, is this a new sort of regime for the, the dollar, in your opinion? We do expect to see sort of dollar weakness over the medium term, I guess I would say. And that's as global growth starts to come back, what you've noticed over the past six months or so is the U.S. dollar really has been the number one safe haven currency. So in times where you have a risk off tone, that's that's positive for the dollar. And, and when you have risk on, the dollar has fallen. And when you think about what's happened in equity markets over the past six months, you know, we're, we're touching new highs. And, and while we're off recent highs, the, the story has been mostly risk on, improved risk sentiment. You have corporate bond spreads hitting new tights and things have gotten a lot better and that's really been a negative for the US dollar. You also have the backdrop of the Fed still has all of these US dollar liquidity facilities in place. They're really not getting tapped anymore. I know the repo facility has gone down to zero. I think central bank liquidity swaps has fallen a bunch as well, not quite down to zero, but I think you have a super accommodative Fed and that's that's certainly not unique to the Fed. All these major global central banks are, are very accommodative and considering new policies every day to try to combat the fallout from the virus. But the one thing that's changed materially is if you look at the yield differential between treasuries and other major government bonds on, on currency unadjusted basis, that's collapsed a ton. So that's one of the things that we think had prior to all of this supported the dollar and is, is now more of a headwind for the dollar. And we expect that to be the case going forward as we do expect yields to rise, but the differential between European government bonds and, and treasury yields is, is going to remain pretty low on a historical basis. Now, is it all connected to sort of, you know, your old textbook catalysts for, for the dollar, meaning the, the trade deficit and the, and the budget deficit, the, the twin deficits really kind of blowing out? Um, is that part of the, the story here, or is it a matter of you know what government is really uh, running a huge surplus now anyway? Is it is it are those catalysts not as important as say they would be in in a quote unquote normal normal world where we're not dealing with all the drama we've dealt with this year? Yeah, I think that's safe to say. And what we've really focused on for the U.S. dollar in the near term is really just general risk sentiment and. Thinking about, you know, tying that into the election and, and what might happen in the next couple of weeks, we sort of see an outcome where if it's a highly contested or a very close election, that would result in U.S. dollar strength because that's really more of a risk off story and would probably push people in, into the dollar. But if you have a clear election outcome, big fiscal stimulus coming, more inflation coming, that's that's more of a dollar weakness risk on trend. And so those are those are really more of the things that we're focused on. It's almost more of a sentiment thing at this point rather than fundamentals, just because fundamentals have shifted so drastically with these budget deficits. And you have 
sovereign nations that have typically run surpluses like Germany, they're, they're doing deficit spending now. So the game has really changed from that perspective. And as we think about what drives the dollar in the near term, it's going to be more about broader risk sentiment. Along those lines, uh, if you look at the dollar versus the offshore Chinese yuan, the past 100-day decline, I was running some calculations on the terminal, the fastest decline since at least 2011, which was pretty amazing to me. And I've heard some describe that as betting on a Biden win. So you see a stronger Chinese currency versus the U.S. dollar. Do you buy that at all? That's an interesting perspective that I I haven't... (laughs) delve too much into myself. But so is that from the perspective that a Biden presidency is is easier on U.S.-China exactly. relations? Yeah, I, I could see that. That's, you know, I... It's squishy. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm not 100% sure that that's, you know, that we're going to have a complete reversal of, of the trade war that President Trump started back in 2019. But I think from the perspective of Biden being a little bit easier on China and and that being positive for the currency does make some sense. But, you know, how much of the process that Trump has put in place as far as tariffs goes gets unwound quickly, I don't know that's going to be a very high priority as we have so much going on with with the pandemic right now and and President or Vice President Biden's policies seem to be would be focused more on on getting fiscal stimulus done here first and just focusing on the public health situation much more than than perhaps immediately dialing back some of the, the tariffs and things like that against China. your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Zach, another note you guys had out that caught my attention, uh, you were talking about the correlation between inflation break-evens and the S&P 500, the stock market. And for listeners who aren't familiar with break-evens, it's basically just the bond market's sort of forecast for inflation over a certain number of years by comparing the, the yields on nominal treasuries to the yields on, on uh, inflation-linked tips treasuries. Inflation expectations by this metric have been firming up, sort of correlating with a higher stock market. You know, it, it kind of surprised me. Uh, you know, I, I took that note and I went back and looked, you know, how long has that correlation been positive? been positive for a long time. Not necessarily a one-to-one super strong correlation, but reliably positive for a long time. But I wonder how long does that correlation stay positive? If inflation expectations really start to get up there, start getting above 2%, say, um, I mean, we know the Fed is willing to allow inflation to run a little bit hot. But I wonder, you know, when and if would could you see that correlation breaking down where uh, inflation gets so hot that that people are worried about it that it becomes sort of a risk off thing in the in the stock market i don 't think it 's tomorrow or next week, but you know where where would you sort of start to look for that to happen? Uh, what kind of 
break-even uh, inflation numbers, would, would you start to worry about that? If you would worry about it all, maybe I'm wrong and, and it's not something to worry about. Yeah, that's that's a great point, Mike. I certainly don't think tomorrow or anytime soon is is possible or even remotely possible. But I think you will see a switch and trying to call out an exact number on, on call it the 10 year break even is is going to be difficult. But I think depending on where inflation expectations go relative to realized inflation, I think letting it run north of two percent, maybe north of two and a half percent is not going to be something that really concerns the Fed. But as you as you get to that point, there's definitely going to be speculation that now is is when the Fed is going to start removing accommodation, maybe increasing rates. And, and we're talking way down the line. If, if you look at the Fed's summary of economic projections from September, they don't have PCE inflation hitting 2% until 2023. And at no point in their forecast horizon do they have it above 2%. So from the perspective of does higher inflation expectations result in shifting expectations for the Fed to perhaps start tightening, I think that's a ways down the road. And if you have inflation expectations running at 25 3%, but you're not seeing it in realized inflation, the Fed is probably going to be somewhat slow to react as they have shifted the policy to this flexible average inflation targeting. But I think they've left themselves the ability to have some a subjective aspect to that because we don't know over what time frame they're, the average inflation has to hit 2%. So I think it'll be definitely be a factor, but for the correlation to remain positive indefinitely is unlikely, but it should remain positive for the foreseeable future as right now our call, the Fed's call is not for inflation to to run super hot through 2023. Um, if you do see inflation expectations go way north of that, that's definitely something that I think they'll take into account, but is unlikely to, to cause on its own a risk off shift anytime soon. Yeah, they seem to be intentionally vague on how high they'll let it go and for how long. I guess I guess there's, you know, a good reason for that. You don't want to paint yourself in a corner to some degree. Right. And I think just the Fed is isn't sure what the fiscal policy outlook is and what the economy is going to look like, what the public health situation is going to look like. So tying themselves too closely to any certain economic outcome seems like an unnecessary box to put themselves in. So while it's a little bit frustrating as a forecaster to have some of this vagueness, it's a bit more understandable in this time that we're in versus a more normal time, let's say. Certainly not normal times. And I think that's a, a great place to leave it then to get into our crazy things. Oh, nice segue, Sarah. Well Thanks, done. Mike. Very good. Very good. Stand clear of the craziest things we saw in markets this week. All right. Well, Zach had a good one. I got to admit that the big bang in the swaps market's a pretty good one. Great minds think alike. Mike. It was an awesome one. <laughs> I like it. All right, Sarah. You know what, Sarah? I'll give you one and then we'll go to yours. And then I've got, I feel like I'm stuck in the alternative asset class that people are going to be disappointed if I don't, if I don't go back to that well. But I'll start with one from our colleague, Katie Greifeld. I find these stories hilarious. It's about the NASDAQ 100. I knew you were yeah. going to say that. It's too Q, good. Q, 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 Q. Do you, is that yours too? No, it's not mine, but it's right. so good. 
So apparently when when these ETFs were set up in the uh, QQQ was was created in 1999 as a unit investment trust. And when you created an ETF under that sort of wrapper back then, you had to identify, I guess they're trustees, they call them, people that who are, are basically their lifespan dictates how long the trust will be in business. So there were 15 millennials who were named in the founding documents of the QQQ. And, uh, you know, my mind just goes in circles trying to figure out how any of this makes sense. But 15 random millennials would determine how long uh, the QQQ lasts, their lifespan. At least uh, they got rid of that this week and they changed it to it's going to last until the, I guess the last security it owns is liquidated or something like that. But what a bizarre sort of way to, to base an ETF. Uh, I, I don't know. It's, lawyers must love stuff like this. I guess it's the was, only explanation I would have. Because it was technically a trust. Uh, it's yeah. really strange and kind of funny. Um, Trillions, which is Bloomberg's ETF podcast with Eric Balchunas and Joel Weber, they did a great episode on this with a couple of those millennials and some of them had no idea that this is even going on. So it's a great listen. It's a bit funny and also um, just informational. Who knew? Yeah, I remember reading about that. And I wasn't, I'm not sure if it was that exact ETF or, or unit investment trust, but it was just the kids or grandkids of people that were working on the Who created yeah, it. Right. Crazy. That was all about the spy, I guess, the, the S&P ETF. That, yes, that's right. Yep. Which I think it's only these really sort of first generation 90s ETFs that, that they did this. And then they figured out another, they found a smarter lawyer to figure out how to do it where you, you didn't <laughs> have to involve millennials. If I, you know, I'm surprised that just finding out 15 millennials were determined the fate of these ETFs that we just didn't see a market crash right there. And then Sarah, maybe that's just my, <laughs> yeah. my, Maybe that's just my Gen X uh, bias. I don't know. <laughs> You're just really worried about leaving leaving a fund in the hands of kids. No longer. <laughs> that's what that's what that means. Old and senile, Mike. Um, <laughs> no, but we we had a we actually had someone write into us on Twitter uh, with a really good one. So this comes from at gi munich. And they retweeted uh, Sam Rowe, who is the managing editor over at Yahoo Finance. But basically, what this was citing was a Bloomberg article. And there is a quote in it that says, cabbage prices are going nuts. And it says, I'll read you the whole quote. It says, cabbage prices are going nuts, said Jung Mie, a mother of two who usually loads up on the vegetable in fall to make her own kimchi. I had to rub my eyes to see the price tag again because it didn't make any sense. So any of you big cabbage eaters, I feel bad for you. <laughs> Are you a big cabbage eater? <laughs> I would not put myself in that category, no. <laughs> <laughs> only, only with the corned beef around there St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> I'm surprised there must be a seasonality to it. I'm going to look that up. There's got to be yeah, a seasonality trend. I can't imagine cabbage. it's because of demand. Uh, <laughs> right. I'm just a demand spike for cabbage. Yeah. But hey, anything can happen this year, right? <laughs> All right, sure. so that's a good one from Twitter. And Sam Rowe is a good provider of uh, crazy things. Uh, good to, good to get, get him a shout out. Uh, what do you have, Sarah? So I'm going to do a little bit more self-promotion. I didn't know you were going to help me out off the top of the show with the Robin Hood story. Um, but I, I wrote a story this week on um, intangible assets. 
and just the growth of intangible assets. And I just thought a number within the story. So really, it's, it's difficult to measure these things. But uh, there was a report by Aon and Ponemont Institute. It was also uh, kind of picked up by Carlisle, Carlisle, by Bank of America. They took the S&P 500's market value, subtracted out its tangible book value, and came to this idea that 84% of the S&P 500's value is derived from intangible assets, which is just a crazy high number. And I know uh, one of Bank of America's strategists, I was speaking to him about this because they cited this number, but he himself was still kind of casting some doubt on it. And I asked him, why are you casting doubt on this number? And he was like, it's just too high. I mean, I, it's really hard to believe that this is true. Um, but it's just a, a fascinating topic, very interesting, um, important. And I just thought that number was pretty wild. That's a little concerning, I'd say. If I mean, the intangibles, depending on what goes into that, if those can be written down, that's... Uh... Yeah, goodwill write downs. I mean, right. how many yeah. times have we seen the you know AOL Time Warner goodwill write down of mammoth pr- proportions? I would give a shout out to our own Cameron Christ, who's written about this this topic. I think uh, a long time ago, so he he had some good columns on that. If you have a terminal, check him out. All right, Tara, I'm going to conclude with some very tangible assets. Alternative, alternative assets. assets, and this is uh, via the New York Post. So there's. And you know what we're gonna, well, you know what we're gonna do. You know what's coming. We're gonna play prices. Oh, prices right. right. Prices right. My on favorite. <laughs> All right. New York Post story about an auction of some famous uh, movie memorabilia. And now I'm gonna tell you some of the items on auction. And Zach and, and Sarah, I want you guys to give me what you think the highest priced item is and and a price. All right, and this is all based on what the auction house expects to get. We don't know, you know, the auction hasn't happened yet, but. All right, first one on the block, the mechanical head from the 1979 movie Alien. All right, that's one, mechanical head from Alien. Two, the thigh-high black boots worn by Julia Roberts in 1990's Pretty Woman. Okay, then we have Keanu Reeves' complete Neo costume from the 2003 movie The Matrix. Matrix Reloaded. Here's one from my day. Marty McFly's jacket from the 1989 Back to the Future Part 2 movie. I thought you were a vest. I don't even know what jacket they're talking about. <laughs> um, and finally, the helmet worn by Tom Hanks in Saving Private Ryan, uh, autographed by the entire cast. So we oh, got yeah. the head from Alien, Julia Roberts' boots, Keanu Reeves' Matrix costume, Marty McFly's jacket, or Saving Private Ryan's helmet. Zach, let's start with you. What, what's your highest bid? What, what's the highest priced item there for you? Zach's trying to figure out how to make derivatives off of all these. <laughs> yeah, the wheels are really turning. I guess I think the highest priced item would be the helmet from Saving Private Ryan, and I think the autographs factor into that. Okay. The amount. Yeah. I'm going to go with a hundred grand. Okay. I'm keeping my poker face on. I'm not going to reveal anything. You're doing really well. I can't, I can't really can't read you right now. Um, I was going to agree with Zach. I was going to say the helmet, but because of the autographs. And if I had, can I, if I had to go into a second, third, 
<laughs> then I would go into Neo's whole Matrix costume. I'm thinking. I also think the boots might be up there. I'm going to say <laughs> the alien head is last. Um, all right, give us some dollar figures here. All Sarah. right, dollar figures. Uh, How much would you pay for those boots? It's assuming they fit you. They're the right size. How much would I pay for those boots? Um, yeah. I mean, I, I'm sure someone would bid way more than I would for them personally. <laughs> but what would someone bid for those yes, boots? Yes, I'm gonna, yes. I'm gonna go with uh, 25k. All right, all right. I'm gonna agree with both of you that I think, and we'll see what the auction turns out. I would have, I would have assumed the Saving Private Ryan helmet would be the most. It's got the autographs. They're only uh, estimating 13 to 19 grand for that one. Wow. But I think if think of this auction through the perspective of a sort of a tech or, or crypto millionaire, if you will, and then it becomes easier. Keanu Reeves costume from the Matrix. They're saying fifty-two to seventy-eight thousand for that. Buy high Julia Robert boots only thirteen to nineteen thousand. And the alien mechanical head fifty-two thousand. So, really? Yeah. Wow, I put that at the bottom. Yeah, yeah so I think I'm, I feel like there's just such a fan base surrounding the Matrix. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The frame of reference I was using was the one from a couple weeks ago, the notorious B.I.G. crown. That was that was in the hundred thousands, <laughs> right? I was, yeah, yeah. You're right. So that was kind of my that was my starting point. Uh, but I guess so that was a little too high. You would prefer the helmet over over the uh, crown. No, I, I want the crown personally. I just thought <laughs> the helmet would be valued a little higher. I would too. I would I would have guessed the helmet, but you know, who knows? That's that's why we are not in the ultimate. What do, right. What do we there know? You go. That's right. <laughs> right. Right. All right. Well, we will have to leave it there. But Zach Griffith, thank you so much for joining the show today. We really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Have a blast. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at, at Sarah Ponsek. Mike is at Reganonymous. And you can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. Also, thank you to Charlie Pellet of Bloomberg Radio and the voice of the New York City subway system. What Goes Up is produced by Jordan Gaspore. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.